This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Random Acts of Kindness segment. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories all over this great country and at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. And also make sure to leave your story there. Our first story is from Memphis, where we found some kind cops and a young man with a very clear sense of priorities. It's a heartwarming video already viewed thousands of times. Memphis police officers brightening the holidays for an 11-year-old burglary victim. Tonight, the officers are talking about going beyond the call of duty. WMC Action News 5's Jason Miles live tonight with their response. Jason? Those officers work here at the Crump Station Police Precinct. They hope what they did inspires others this holiday season. You see on the news what Memphis police often encounter while on the job. 11-year-old Tontravian Campbell is proof that it's not all bad. Officers replaced the Xbox stolen during a burglary at his family's home. When we asked the, the child if he was going to get a new Xbox for Christmas, he said, no, my mom you know, doesn't have that kind of money. And... Um, all the money she makes goes to pay the bills. Officers from Crump Station's Charlie Shift talked to us about the gesture, which went viral Sunday thanks to this Facebook video. This house was burglarized not too long ago uh, today while these folks were at church. They say Tontravian was more concerned about his mother than the stolen Xbox, which is what impressed them the most. Just to be able to alleviate some of his stress, just for that day and actually help their family when in this time, like Christmas, it, it really was an overwhelming feeling. Contravian actually posted a comment on the WMC Action News 5 Facebook page, writing in part, quote, am so thankful. His mother added, quote, I'm truly grateful for the generosity that was given to my son. Policing is not really about just going into dangerous situations. It's definitely about helping out the community as well. No problem, Something one 11-year-old found out firsthand. And officers bought that new Xbox and three games at the GameStop store in Midtown. The store donated an additional controller. Reporting live from the Crump Station Precinct, Jason Miles, WMC Action News 5. And our second story comes from CBS's Steve Hartman, who meets some of the most interesting and some of the kindest people in this country. For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. But Ibby says not here, thanks to a barista who recently did something truly grande. And when I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language, just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffees? She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drinking? Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. 
But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It's something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now. Still smiling. (laughs) And finally, here's a story about how regularly ordering a pizza saved a man's life. In the middle of a very busy Saturday night, the staff at this Domino's Pizza on Silverton Road realized that they hadn't gotten an order from one of their favorite customers in almost two weeks. So they went to check on him, and sure enough, he was having a medical emergency. So we always orders online, so it pretty much just comes up on our main line. Every couple days, Sarah Fuller's staff gets an order from one of their regulars, 48-year-old Kirk Alexander. But over the weekend, it dawned on everyone that they hadn't seen Alexander's name pop up for a long time. A couple different people had pointed it out to me, and so Saturday night was when I finally decided to look up to see when his last order what happened to be, and it was 11 days ago, which is not normal at all. Sarah sent a delivery driver to Alexander's house, and something was clearly wrong. He called us back and said that, you know, he knocked and heard the TV, but he didn't have an answer, and so we gave him his phone number, and then he tried to call. The staff called 911, and when deputies arrived, they heard Alexander inside yelling for help. They forced their way in and found him on the floor having a medical emergency. I bang on the door, but he doesn't always answer. Neighbor Robert Lalonde knows that Alexander's had health problems, so he keeps an eye on him, too. He was also worried that something was wrong, so he's grateful that Domino's stepped in. That's awesome. That is awesome. You know, most people just take it for granted. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's really cool. These Domino's employees are always on the move, trying to make and deliver food fast. But they say they're never too busy to help someone in need. We're always looking out for everyone out there and caring for our customers especially. And early yesterday morning, paramedics responded with deputies as well. They rushed Alexander to Salem Hospital, and he is still there tonight in fair condition. Live in Salem, Jamie Wilson, Fox 12, Oregon. And there you have it from all around this great country. From coast to coast, it's constantly happening. You just never hear about it. But here on Our American Stories, we do it every week. Random Acts of Kindness. And you can go to randomactsofkindness.org. Look for stories like this. Better still, post your stories there. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to catch all of our stories and all of our random acts of kindness. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we tell stories about everything on this show. One of them, by the way, 
is the arts. We love telling stories of songs, great books, 1776 by David McCullough. We've done it. Uh, the stories of Aretha Franklin's music, the stories of the Doors music, the stories behind so many great songs. Well, I came across a book that tried to solve a riddle that's been on my mind most of my life. What makes something last, art, past a year, five years? Why are we still listening to Merle Haggard's music or Pink Floyd's music or Bach or Beethoven or Shakespeare? Why? And were those writers, when they were writing it, thinking about creating art that lasts or just getting out there and making a hit? Well, it turns out that there's a man who's tried to answer that question in a book. Ryan Holiday is a writer and media strategist who has advised clients like Google, Taser, and Tony Robbins. We asked him to share some stories from his book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Here's Ryan explaining where the book's title came from. In the late 1930s, there was a British literary critic named Cyril Connolly, and he had never really been successful himself as a writer. Uh, he desperately wanted to. He knew many successful writers. He'd actually gone to school with George Orwell. And so he, he wrote this book as a book of literary criticism. And, and basically his premise is, how many of the books that my friends are writing, that I am trying to write, that any writer is publishing, how, how many of them will be around in 10 years? He felt like 10 years was the mark of literary greatness. In the industry, we, we call any book that lasts for more than a year or two, we call them perennial, right? A book that's lasted for 10 years would be a, a very big success. But the irony is if you pull up uh, the New York Times bestseller list and you go to the, the fine print at the bottom, it says among the categories not actively tracked at this time are perennial sellers. So there's this term, we know there are these books that, that last and last, and yet most of our focus in the industry, whether we're making books or music or movies, is about new things. It was in 2015, actually, for the first time in the, the music business that catalog albums officially outsold new releases. And so we know that the things that were made a long time ago, if you think of many of your favorite books and movies and television shows and restaurants, many of them are not brand new. It's, it's actually the ones that have really stood the test of time that we return to over and over again. And yet it, it's strange where most of the energy in these industries go. And so what's so fascinating about Cyril Connolly's sort of journey is he's writing about this, but then can he actually do it? Right. You know, he's writing a book about creating lasting, enduring work. Well, I, I was fascinated by the idea of like, could could he actually do it? Was he sort of like a, a literary Babe Ruth? Could he hit the ball where he set out to to hit it, where he pointed and told the crowd or the pitcher that he was going to hit it? And the book, it, it, it never became a sort of a massive cultural trendy sensation. But it did endure, you know, it, it was published in 1937 and it endured through a world war, through political revolutions, through fads, divorces, new fashion styles, massive technological disruption, and so many other things. It, it, it was given a second edition 10 years later, so 1947 or 1948, it was republished. And then in 2008, it was published in a third edition. And it's still reading today. And, and here I am talking to to you guys about it and so it's a book that's outlived him and almost everything else published at that time it's 
earned the author a cult-like following among fellow writers and creatives. And I think what's so impressive is that he set out to achieve this thing and he and he did it. He has another quip. He said, you know, I'd like my my work to outlive a dog or a cat. And it is interesting how how many books and projects that creatives kill themselves to make and how ephemeral most of them are. James Salter is one of my favorite novelists. I was reading one of his books not long ago and on the back, which wouldn't, it wouldn't have been written by him, but it, it described his novels as having a sort of imperishable freshness. And I, I just love that idea. I, I love the idea of making something perennial, something imperishable, something that stands the test of time. And by my goodness, when we're watching Shawshank Redemption on TV or The Godfather for 90th time, we know we're watching perennials, right? And they give us more satisfaction than so much of the new stuff that we know is going to be old stuff really fast. Here's Ryan sharing some stories from his own background that prompted him to create books and other work that stands the test of time. I've always had this lifelong fascination with things that were old. When I was a teenager, everything I liked was old. My favorite bands had released their albums decades before I was born. Um, they were still going strong by the time I came around. I, I remember picking up The Great Gatsby in high school and thinking how incredible it is that this book that was written to be a critique of the jazz age, right? It was a timely periodical, could have endured and, and somehow been so so timeless and, and true e- even to a, a random high schooler in California, you know, 60 plus years later. And my first job as a writer. I was a research assistant to an author named Robert Greene who wrote a book called The 48 Laws of Power. This was a book that didn't hit the bestseller list until a decade after it had come out. And and yet, quietly and slowly, it sold more than a million copies and been translated into dozens of languages. I, I would guess that in a, a hundred years from now, people would still be reading it. Um, another book that I worked on, you know, got a $7,500 advance, which is this tiny advance. It's what they call a kiss-off advance in the industry, meaning that it's the, the lowest amount of money they can give you without hurting your feelings, and they, they hope you'll go away. And that book went on to sell over a million and a half copies. And, and, you know, now, 10 years after its release, it sells about 300 copies a week. And I, I went on as a marketer. I became the director of marketing in American Apparel. And it was interesting at the, this company, which sold hundreds of millions of garments, every year the best-selling items were the items created at the beginning of the company's trajectory. It was, And they had this mission of making, making things that would be sold in vintage shops in the future. And I just love this idea of making things that can last with with my own books you know perhaps the readers haven't haven't heard of me or they certainly wouldn't have seen me on the new york times bestseller list uh, for the most part and yet quietly and and like clockwork they sell about 5000 copies across the various titles every single week and the marketing for them has long since finished and yet you know surprise uh one of my books did appear on a bestseller list last week a year after it had come out. And so it's this idea of making things that resonate with people that really solve some problem for them. You know, the the best book to have written as a creative 
would have been what to expect when you're expecting because every day in every part of the world uh, a couple gets pregnant and they don't know what to do and so i'm i'm fascinated by that kind of work the 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 work that endures and it it saddens me that so much work that is made doesn't endure and so i was fascinated by this question of sort of what similarities do these works have in common and I, I set out, I, I interviewed uh, all sorts of, of authors and editors and producers and uh, marketers and entrepreneurs. And, and I tried to get to the bottom of what makes things last. And, I, you know, I found a few things. I think first is that work needs to be unique. If it, It's very hard for it to endure if it is not definitive, if it, if, if it doesn't stand out, stand alone. And yet, on the other hand, it should do a very simple job. I think one of, one of my editors said to me one time, she said, Ryan, it's not what a book is, it's what a book does. And by that she meant it has to do something for the reader. It's not necessarily about what it does for the creator, it's about what it does. So what to expect when you're expecting it, it helps you with this difficult time in your life. And and I think that's what the best the best work does. You know, it's this this question, this is a blank, that does blank for blank. If you can't fill those in as a creator, you're going to have a lot of trouble. I, I was interested in the test that Max Martin, one of the greatest songwriters, certainly the most prolific and popular songwriters of all time, it's written for everyone from Celine Dion to the Backstreet Boys to Bon Jovi to Taylor Swift. And he subjects his music to what he calls the car test. He gets in his car in Los Angeles. You know, he puts the top down, he puts it on the stereo, and he drives up and down the Pacific Coast Highway. Is the music adding to that experience? That The idea that even music is designed to really do something for the audience is something I think that people miss. And, and so that, that's an essential part of this sort of creative process. And when we come back, more from Ryan Holiday on his book, Perennial Seller. And my goodness, what a fascinating question. What makes things last? Not just art, products, heck, maybe even a marriage. More after these messages. continue with our conversation with Ryan Holiday, his book, Perennial Seller. And here's Ryan telling the story of how stumbling onto a band influenced the rest of his life and the rest of his career. In 2001, I, I would have been maybe 14 years old, and I was trying to illegally download a Metallica song on the pirating site Audio Galaxy, and I accidentally downloaded a song by the band Iron Maiden. I, I don't remember what Metallica song I was trying to download, but the one that I did get is etched in my memory. It was a song called Hallowed Be Thy Name by Iron Maiden. And I couldn't have known that as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old that that seven-minute song, I think it's about a condemned man's last night on earth, that this song would take me on this strange journey that I'd see the band many times over the next 17 years, over many different presidents, 
that that even contained within that song would be lessons that I would would help me make a living as a writer. But a few weeks ago, I was in San Antonio and I saw Iron Maiden play a sold out show. It would have been, you know, 20,000 people in the audience. And next to the same friend that I'd remember telling on Instant Messenger about this band that I just heard of. And in front of us was this four decade old heavy metal band from East London that since 1975 had produced 16 studio albums, you know, a dozen live albums, two dozen world tours, literally thousands of concerts in 60 countries. They'd sold close to 100 million albums. They'd hit number one five different times, 15 million social media followers, 250 million streams on Spotify, which is more than Prince or Madonna. This is a band that hasn't been on the radio since, well, really ever. And what Iron Maiden is and what they inspired in me and why I think they're a lesson to most creatives is that they are perennial in the sense that they have an audience that they own that they perform exclusively for, right? So most bands are trying to put out a single to be on television, to be on the radio, to get new fans. And, and Iron Maiden has said, that their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, he, he said, you know, we're like farmers. We have our field and we're tilling that field. We don't really care what's going on on these other fields. There's supposedly a story between the lead singer of Iron Maiden and the manager of Iron Maiden and at an industry event. And some young agent came up to him and said, look, I, you know, I admire, he said this to Iron Maiden's manager. He said, I admire what you do. It's just incredible, uh, the success that you've had. And, and the manager said to him, you probably think that I'm in the music business. And the guy said, yeah, of course. And he said, I'm not in the music business. He said, I'm in the Iron Maiden business. And, and what he meant is that he didn't care about trends or fads or what everyone else is doing. He didn't care about other acts, even in their niche. He only cared about this one band and about making something that's true for those fans and, and something that, that, that they cared about. And so as a writer, I've always, I've always taken a great lesson from that. How, how, do you, how do you not care what's going on around you and only care what those true fans want and need? And how do you make something special that goes to some core part of the the human experience for them and make it so good that they want to invite other people to join that exclusive sort of community or cult or club with you? And and so what I was trying to write in Perennial Cellar is sort of a recipe for how to do that. You know, how to how to develop that thing you know Stefan Zwig would say and, and obviously he lived many years before Iron Maiden he, he would say that the most valuable thing for an artist to achieve is a faithful following a reliable group of readers who looked forward to every book and bought it who trusted me and whose trust I must not disappoint and I think that's wonderful advice whether you're you know a baker or a mechanic or a best-selling author or a multi-platinum musician is how do you achieve that following and and build that platform that that's that's what the book is ultimately about and here's ryan on the relationship between creative artists and marketing i talk to many 
creatives and writers and entrepreneurs. And I, I tend to find that they follow a, an arc where they, they throw themselves into making whatever it is that they're making. And it takes everything they have and they get there, they limp across this finish line and they think they're done. And sadly, that's not true. I liken creativity to being a marathon that you finish. And when you walk across the finish line, instead of someone grabbing you by the shoulders and putting a medal around your neck, they, they grab you by the hand and pull you to the starting line of a next marathon where you have to run again. And that second marathon is, is marketing. How do you get attention for that work? If you, if you can't find an audience, then so much of that work was likely in vain. There was an interview a few years ago with the novelist Ian McEwen, and he was saying what a pain it was to market his books. He said, I feel like a wretched employee of my former self, my former self being the happily engaged novelist who now sends me a kind of salesman out on the road to hawk this book. He got all the fun writing it, and I'm the poor bastard who has to sell it. But making art for a living is a privilege, and one of the obligations of that privilege is thus the selling. Uh, there's a line from Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal. He said, if you don't see any salespeople in your organization, then you're the salesperson. Who's going to pitch your work if not you, right? Who's going to sell this thing if you're not interested in selling it? And so that's what I end up telling a lot of creatives. There's no magical firm that you can hire. There's no magical button you can press. There's no magical media outlet. Even being on this wonderful show isn't going to guarantee that my book, Perennial Seller, is going to find all the people who are interested in finding it. And so if you're not going to do it, who will? Peter Drucker, the management expert, he said that each project needs someone who says, I'm going to make this succeed and then goes to work and does it. That that has to be you. So I push creatives to think of marketing not even as an obligation, but as a essential part of the creative process. Can you be as creative in your media appearances, in your marketing, in your ways of getting customers as you were in writing every page or, you know, developing the uh, the vintage of wine that you're you're selling or the the boots that you wanted to produce, right? How can that be as much of a of a canvas to paint on to make something special as as the thing you you made itself. And a lot of creatives fail at this. I mean, the, the, the shelves groan with unwatched movies and unread books. And, you know, our phones are filled with downloaded music and podcasts that we'll never get around to seeing. And so that urgency, that sense of I've got to make people care about this is really the essential task of the writer or the creative of any kind. You know, if you build it, they will not come. That is not how it works. You have to make them. You have to invite them one by one until the crowd is full, until the, the, the seats are filled. And that's why you did this work in the first place, right? Certainly no one slaves away on some creative or artistic project purely for their own satisfaction. Otherwise, why would they have ever released it in the first place? And so 
that idea of, of taking ownership of, of it is the difference, I think, between something that sells five copies and something that sells five million copies. And I think every artist would rather, whether they admit it or not, reach five million people than five. And there you have it, Ryan Holiday, his new book, Perennial Seller, and essentially answering the question, what makes things last? From products to art, frankly, to a marriage or anything else you care about in your life. And by the way, I love the line, it's not important what a book is about. It's it's important what a book does to the reader. And hopefully we're doing good things for you, the listeners. Ryan Holiday's story, Perennial Seller, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, we celebrate the youngest American to earn the Medal of Honor since the Civil War. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And he was born on this day in history in 1928. This is the story of a boy named Jacqueline. Jacqueline Harold Lucas, who always went by Jack, was born in a little town in North Carolina whose population could not fill one-tenth of the modern Dean Dome for a Tar Heels basketball game. And growing up, Jack was a handful. My father died when I was 11 years old, and I uh, became kind of a tough kid after that to handle. My mother couldn't handle me, sent me off military school. He excelled at the Edwards Military Institute, He was a cadet captain, led the football team, and enjoyed pretty much anything involving a ball, a pair of boxing gloves, a horse, or a gun. But then came December 7th, 1941. Word of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor reached young Jack in the dining hall. That day, uh... Cold chill came over me, and I knew, and I was became obsessed from that day one that I wanted to kill Japanese. They uh, hurt my country, and I sought every way I could to get into the Marine Corps. I was young, but I knew that I could fight. To join the Marine Corps, a man had to be 18 or 17 if a parent signed off on it. But Jack, well, Jack was just 13. So he spent the rest of eighth grade trying to talk his mother into saying that he was 17. His mother quickly figured out that she couldn't stop him, but she also refused to lie for him. So I had to forge my own consent papers and I went to Norfolk, Virginia and signed up at 14. I had turned 14 years old then. And with that, the 5'8", 180-pound 14-year-old went off to Paris Island. He did well at boot camp, and again at heavy machine gun training at Camp Lejeune. Higher-ups wanted to keep Jack as an instructor while the rest of his unit headed west to fight. But Jack being Jack, 
He just hopped on the train with the rest of his buddies and was soon headed to Japan by way of California and Hawaii. And everything would have worked out just fine, except for a little hiccup involving a letter to a girl that was read by the censors. A girl wrote me a letter and said she was 15 years old. And of course I replied to her that I was just 15. I didn't think about the censor getting a hold of my letter and seeing I was 15 years old. So they let the outfit move on out to Raw and left me behind. I couldn't understand that. And after we were gone, the colonel called me and said, we know you're only 15 years old. We don't prepared to discharge you. I said, well, my mother doesn't complain about it. You put the training into me, and if you don't let me stay, I'll go back and join the Army and give them the benefit of the Marine Corps training. So the colonel let the 15-year-old stay, but this was not a 15-year-old who would be content doing desk work and driving supply trucks around Hawaii. So a lot of guys that get in trouble, they ship, ship them out to combat. So I went on a fighting binge. 17 straight liberties got locked up 17 times fighting. And it wasn't getting me anywhere. I said, man, I got to wise up and learn. I'm a slow learner, I guess. Troop ships full of combat Marines bound for the Pacific would stop in Hawaii to give the Marines one more round of fun before hitting the enemy-held beaches. So repeating his trick to leave North Carolina, Jack blended in with the crowd of Marines and made himself at home aboard the USS Duel, bound for Iwo Jima. I didn't have a bit of trouble to go into the child lines. I told everybody I was on guard duty, and all the guards signed guard duty could go in front of the child line and eat. So I, so I just, every day, every meal, I'd go in front of the child line. Never did have to wait. Well, I did this for 29 days, and finally they said, you better turn yourself in you'll be declared a deserter. So I didn't want my picture back in the post office and my mom would see it. So I turned myself in and the colonel says, boy, I'd love to have a boatload of fellows want to fight as bad as you do. The next week, Jack celebrated his 17th birthday. And five days after that, the Marines enjoyed an early breakfast of steak, eggs, and bourbon and hit the beaches of Iwo Jima. That was one terrific place to try to get up off of. The beach was about a 45 degree angle, and it was like running in bing bags. We fought again across the island that, that afternoon and that day, and stopped on the other side near the neck, just below Mount Suribachi. We moved out the next day, and we really got hammered bad with mortar fire. A lot of our boys were really torn to pieces and they would fire like in checkerboard fashion uh, so that you couldn't calculate where the next attack mortar would be. In this hectic environment, Jack and his four-man fire team advanced through the Japanese trenches, clearing enemies from dug-in positions. Jack's team leader jumped into a neighboring trench to see what was there, but he hopped right back. He had landed on the back of a Japanese soldier which might have been easy to deal with, except that there were 10 other Japanese soldiers. And so began a messy firefight between four Marines and 11 Japanese. 
All these Japanese stood up in front of us and we opened fire. And we're too close to put it rifle to our shoulder. We, we uh, fired off hand. And we opened fire, I shot two. The second one I shot, of all things, my rifle jammed. But of course it was, it was just fake to happen. Because if I hadn't, I wouldn't, none of us would have seen the grenades. Looking down to clear his rifle, Jack spotted two enemy hand grenades. The Japanese Type 97 frag grenade was about a pound of metal wrapped around two ounces of explosives set off by a fuse that had a five second delay. So here is the $64,000 question. When were those grenades tossed into the trench? If they came in just a moment ago, then Jack could pick them up, return to sender, and kill some Japanese. But if they had been there for two, three, or even four seconds, then picking them up would let the grenades explode at the head level of the Marines. And as bad as it is to have two grenades by your feet, two grenades by your head, that's worse. With no more time to think, Jack jumped on one grenade and reached out to pull the other one to tuck it under his own body. Now fortunately, one grenade was a dud, but the other one wasn't. It blew me over my back and blew my arm away and around behind me. It did not knock me out, but it punctured my right lung. I had a couple hundred holes in me. It was like anything from uh, a BB shot to a 22. I was bleeding profusely from the nose and mouth. And I tell you one thing, buddy. I said, God save me. I didn't call upon mama or anybody else. I said, God, please save me. The other three members of Jack's fire team killed the remaining Japanese and left Jack for dead. But what they didn't expect and couldn't see was that Jack was in fact alive. And in this mess of volcanic ash, dust, and shrapnel, Jack was twitching the fingers on his left hand, desperately trying to show somebody, anybody, that he was still alive. Another group of Marines spotted Jack, and they called for one of the unsung heroes of infantry combat, a Navy corpsman. And in the middle of patching Jack up, this corpsman had to take a little break to deal with an uninvited guest. And while he was kneeling there, he's facing towards this open hole at the end of the trench and shot another Jap that had come out to lobby another grenade on me. So, buddy, I really love Corman. He saved my life. Thanks to the Herculean efforts of this corpsman, stretcher bearers, and many Marines, sailors, and doctors along the way, Jack Lucas survived after 22 surgeries. As Jack recovered stateside, his plans of meeting up with his girlfriend were rudely interrupted. President Truman decorates a group of 14 Marine and Navy men for heroism above and beyond the call of duty. 17-year-old Private Lucas, who enlisted at 14, threw himself on an exploding grenade to save his fellow men. Walked up and saluted. The president said, I'd rather have this medal than be president of the United States. And I said, sir, I'll swap you. Marines have an odd sense of humor, and you would too if you've lived their lives. Remember how Jack was a stowaway and turned himself in to the colonel on the 8th of February? Well, it takes some time for word to travel from ship to shore. So on the 10th of February, Jack's 30th day of unauthorized absence, 
officials back on land demoted Jack to private and marked him as a deserter. And desertion is a crime potentially punishable by death. So this is the story of a boy named Jacqueline who forged his way into the Marines at 14, deserted his way into the most dangerous combat zone in the world at 16, and earned our nation's highest award for valor six days after his 17th birthday. <laughs> Could you imagine a better resume for a Marine legend and an American hero? That's Jack Lucas. Great job as always, Stan, and Jack Lucas's story the youngest Medal of Honor recipient since the Civil War, born on this day in history in 1928. This is Our American Stories, and now... Here's the story of one of America's top comedians who became so successful, it scared him to death. Here's Dave Chappelle's story. This whole world is just drug-infested, hate-infested, drug-infested world. Hate drugs. I heard the worst drug story. You know what my friend told me? You know what he's dealing with? His landlord is hooked on crack. That's, that's terrible. That's pressure. Your landlord's hooked on crack. That means you've gotta have the rent. <laughs> you come around I got the rent it's not even due yet it's the 10th come on I need it <laughs> let me just get $20 of it now and then uh, just give me the rest of the end of the month every couple hours hey look I'm gonna need some more of the rent this building's falling apart things came up comes home early from a party landlord's in the crib going through it what are you doing in my house ah Where's the sink? I came to fix it. It's in the kitchen. I thought it was in the drawer. I'll fix it tomorrow when I come for the rent. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. Born in Washington, D.C., the youngest of three children, both of his parents were college professors and his mother was even a Unitarian minister. After graduating high school, Chappelle realized that he wanted to be in show business when his dad gave him some valuable advice. My mother and my grandmother were freaked out. You know, I was the first person in my family not to go to college that had not been a slave. <laughs> so I was really breaking from tradition, and uh, it was like a graduation lunch we were having and they had my dad come and talk to me and my dad takes me outside and he's like listen he says to be an actor is a lonely life everybody wants to make it and you might not make it and I said to my dad well, well that depends on what making it is dad was smart smart ass kid it depends on what making it is dad he says what do you mean I said well you're a teacher I said if I can make a teacher salary doing comedy I think that's better than being a teacher and he started laughing. He said, if you keep that attitude, I think you should go. He said, but name your price in the beginning. If it ever gets more expensive than the price you name, get out of here. Chappelle moved to New York City and performed at Harlem's famed Apollo Theater in front of the infamous Amateur Night audience. But he was booed off stage. 
Dave Chappelle later described the experience as the moment that gave him the courage to continue his show business aspirations. So he quickly made a name for himself in the New York comedy circuit. At age 19, he made his film debut in Mel Brooks' Robin Hood, Men in Tights. He also appeared on Star Search three times but lost. The same year, Chappelle was offered the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump. Concerned the character was demeaning and the movie would bomb, he turned down the part. Just a few years later, his first lead role was in the 1998 comedy film Half-Baked, which he co-wrote. It was around this time that Chappelle landed a role in a pilot TV show based on his failure on stage at the Apollo. I was 23 when I was doing Half-Baked. I was getting ready to turn 24. And I was going through all the things that a dude goes through when it goes from one level to the next, starring in my, a movie that I wrote. So things start getting crazy around you. And my 24th birthday was coming on August the 24th, and I said, this is going to be a big one. And the morning that I turned 24, phone rang, and my sister was like, Dad had a stroke. For the next year, I watched my father teeter on life and death. And it was just all this stuff, man. Like I was a, dad was dying, the half-baked didn't come out the way I wanted it to come out. I was real upset about that. Because it was a real cool script and then I saw it, I was like, hey man, you made a weed movie for kids. I get a call on my cell phone from Hollywood. I'm like, hello Hollywood. They're like, hello Dave. They're like, that pilot you did for Fox, the, looks like they want to pick it up. We need you to come out because they want to meet with you. And I was like, well, listen, I can't really come out right now. Got a real bad situation at home. Can we talk about this on the phone? No, no, they would rather meet with you in person. Ah! I jumped on that plane and left my father's bedside, which I regret to this day. And I went out and I sat with these people in this room. Yeah, Dave, we really liked the show, but the, the pilot episode was about me getting booed off stage at the Apollo. They go, you know, but what are we going to do about it? I mean, there's not really any white people in it. So well, it's about the Apollo. It's not really white. Well, you know, we were thinking about the girl on the show. We didn't think she was that funny, not that good looking. I think we should recast her, maybe. And they start using terms like universal appeal. Basically saying they want me to recast the girl with a white woman. I say, yeah, I don't think I can do this, and, and, and I quit. The following day, Dave Chappelle would learn a valuable lesson that he would never forget about the media and himself. The cover of Ratty, Chappelle pulls the race card. The race card. And I get calls from Newsweek, 60 Minutes. Everybody, we want your story. <laughs> now I'm scared to death. I'm like Rosa Parks or some <laughs> Like, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I was just venting a little bit. And then, a few months later, dad dies. And that's hard for a young dude in his life. That's a, that's a real tough loss. I was there when he died. And he went from being my father to what are we going to do with the body. Within moments, it was over. And I'm going through all this stuff, and this is the guy I would usually talk to, right? Dad. And I got to figure this out for myself. I don't want to figure this out for myself. You know, I was beat down. I wasn't living right. You know what I mean? Like the weed thing was just bad habit at this point. And, and 
You know what I mean? All these, you know, chicken head girls you mess with when it comes with the territory. I'm just being real. Just being real. <laughs> it was one living right, man. I didn't feel good. And, and the stand-up stuff was just some angry stuff. It was just like I was kind of bottoming out. But when my dad died, because I'd been commuting back and forth to Ohio so much, that's when I bought the farm. When we come back, the rest of the Dave Chappelle story, where he turns his back on Hollywood and a $50 million contract. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Story, and now we return to the story of Dave Chappelle. When we left off, Dave's father had died, so he decided to get his family out of L.A. and move to a farm in Ohio. Here's Jesse. So Dave and his family moved to Yellow Springs, Ohio, where his father had lived, buying a 65-acre farm. The illusion of fame and fortune in Hollywood was shattered forever. It's something so real in contrast to what Hollywood is, a very powerful illusion. And when your dad dies, it kind of just broke the spell, like, oh, this is bullshit. Look, I've been spending so much time doing this. What about my family? What about my friends? Wait, whatever happened to my friends? Damn, I don't even have any friends. Ugh. So I bounced, man. New Year's Eve, 1999, I I moved into that farm, and that was it. As far as I was concerned, I was done with show business. But his career in show business was just beginning. In 2003, he debuted his own weekly sketch comedy show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. After just two seasons, it was a massive success. Due to the show's popularity, Comedy Central's new parent company, Viacom, offered Chappelle a $50 million contract to continue production of Chappelle's show for two more years. Season 3 was scheduled to begin airing on May 31st, 2005, but Chappelle stunned fans and the industry when he abruptly left during production for South Africa. Let's start the show. Immediately following his departure, tabloids quickly and repeatedly speculated that Chappelle's exit was driven by drug addiction or a mental health issue. I was freaked out, man, with the fame thing and, and being called uh, crazy and drug addict and all these things. Uh, scared me. You know, being treated that way. Like I'm not a person anymore. And then I got to make some real choices, man. Is that what I want for myself? Did I get too big? Because I like people. I like entertaining. And the higher up I go, for some reason, the less happy I am. You know, is it going to get to the point where I'm doing a strip tease on TRL or waving a gun on the street, saying they're trying to kill me? No, I'm not going to let it get to that point. I'm going to go to Africa. 
I'm going to find a way to, I'm going to find a way to be myself, man. I got to, in Africa, there's a small community of people that don't know anything about the work I do. And they just treat me like I'm a regular dude. So I knew that in Africa I'd have a place to sleep, and that I wouldn't have to feel strange. And, you know, when they would call me crackhead and all these things in the country where I'm from, in Africa, they didn't know anything. They was feeding me and taking care of me and taking me to the mall and just regular stuff. And it just made me feel good. It just reminded me that I was a person, you know. It would be some time before Dave Chappelle went back to the United States from Africa and 10 years before he would return to the stage with his stand-up comedy. I didn't even know they were saying those things about me. Then I call home and people be like, oh my God, are you all right? Yeah, chill, I'm in Africa, baby, what's going on? <laughs> and then I got a call from a journalist that had been working on a story and he was like, yeah, I'm rumor mill's going on about you. Just want to clear a few things up. And I'm like, yeah, what's going on? Okay, uh... Do you smoke crack? I said, what? Do you smoke crack? Did you graduate from high school? Uh, I mean, it was all these crazy questions. And I thought about never coming back. I said, this, this place is crazy. Like, I'm, I'm that dude. I just thought about all the things that celebrities go through and what celebrities become in our culture. You know, if you Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston and your marriage is breaking up, that's an awful thing. But to see that speculation in people, gotta sting a little bit. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm one of those people. That's a small club, man. That's a weird place to be. Ain't really no going back. You can't, you can't get unfamous. You can get infamous. So I got scared. I'm not gonna lie, y'all. I was scared to death. And I, I didn't touch the mic. But you know what was cool, man? The first time I went back out and did stand up, it was in Cincinnati. So it's not far from the farm. I said, if I got to run, I can get home fast. <laughs> and um, clubs sold out real fast. I played a comedy club. And man, when I walked out on that stage and them people were screaming, I get teary-eyed just thinking about it. Because this industry can say whatever they want, but man, people will hold you up. And that crowd, man, my spirits were so low when they was just holding me up. And I, I hadn't told jokes, but this was just coming back like, cry the kid again, you're the best around. I just, I was, I was just doing it, man. In August of 2013, Dave Chappelle returned to full-time touring stand-up comedy as a headliner. In 2017, Netflix released two never-before-seen specials which would hail directly from Chappelle's personal comedy vault. The specials were an immediate success as Netflix announced a month later that they were the most viewed comedy specials in Netflix history. Also in 2017, Dave Chappelle walked into the newly renovated Chappelle Auditorium at Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina. Chappelle stopped to admire the work of Bishop William D. Chappelle, whom the auditorium is named after. He was a pastor, businessman, Allen University president, and more importantly, Dave Chappelle's great-grandfather. After being awarded the key to the city by the mayor, Dave Chappelle stopped by the auditorium to speak to an audience filled with students about the decisions he's made in his own life and the importance of staying true to yourself. For all the things that I've done, I'm most renowned for what I didn't do. I, I've made decisions in my career that a lot of people have called insane. 2004, I had a $50 million deal on the table. 
and in a crisis of conscience, flipped the table over and walked away. Went to South Africa. Everyone said I was running away from the money. That is not true. In fact, I still want that money. <laughs> the idea that I wanted to just share with you guys is the idea that sometimes you, you do what you think is best. Uh, whether anybody understands it or not. I heard a story about my father where someone told me he used to do statistics for a company in D.C. The company he did statistics for started doing business with the South African government. So he quit his job. It's caused a lot of problems between his, him and his wife. It's hard for a man when he can't provide for his family the way he wants to. And he suffered through it. And a generation later, when I had my crisis of conscience, I was able to go to a free South Africa and get away from the heat. This idea that what you do in your lifetime informs the generations that comes after you is something I keep thinking about, something that is so much bigger than just ourselves. And today I'm standing in front of you guys, and I know you guys are like, oh, I know you're bored. But I see family of mine in the front row that, that I, some who I've never met, and I just realize how, how all, all of us are, are connected. That my great-grandfather built something more substantial than buildings. He, he built a community, and he built, more importantly than a community, he, he built a way. People are trying to replace the ideas of good and bad with better or worse. And that is incorrect. You got to keep your ethics intact because uh, good and bad is a compass that helps you find the way. And a person that only does what's better or worse is the easiest type of person to control. They are a mouse in a maze that just finds the cheese. But the one who knows about good and bad will realize that he's in a maze. It's okay to be afraid because you can't be brave or courageous without fear. The idea of being courageous is that even though you're scared, you just do the right thing anyway. So in 2004, I walked away from $50 million and in November, I made a deal for $60 million. So. Although I am not the most famous comedian of my time, I would like to know what their great-grandfathers did. I'm, I'm very proud today. Thank you very much. And that's the story of the one and only Dave Chappelle, a testament to being true to yourself. He walked away from a $50 million contract, fame, and the adoration of his fans just to be there for his family and himself. Dave Chappelle is not your average Hollywood story. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for an American Dreamer's story, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And this one, well, it's not a standard American Dreamer's story. Let's go to our own Alex Cortez. We previously brought you Jim Bookwalt's story of him going through several jobs and degrees just to find out what he wanted to do with his life. You're supposed to be successful and go out and make your living. And here I was, back home, flat busted and poor again. (laughs) But Jim would find his calling building compressors for the global energy industry, even though he had never built one before. That is almost inexplicable. But I didn't worry about it. I knew I could do it. I was 30 years old. And when you're 30, you're solid brass. You can can do anything. These are wild, fun business stories about the struggle and the fight. And as you know, our culture tends to only tell the triumphant stories. And although Jim's business story is certainly that, his aerial corporation will become the world's leader in the industry. There's a human side to this story that isn't as triumphant. Here was a close friend who was causing me the same anguish, and I surely didn't know how to deal with that. We tend to forget that we humans make up these businesses, and therefore that the human relationships involved can be as broken as we are as people. That's today's story, a window into the humanity usually left unspoken about. And as pretty much as always is the case, the beginning of these personal relationships among co-founders is positive. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't go into business together. And that was no different for Jim when he met George Woodman. We spent some time together, and George and I just got to be friends. It's one of those things you can do better when you're younger. The older you get, the harder it is to make friends. It just doesn't work as easily. And he first became especially close with the third co-founder, Jim Doan, through hiking. At one point, I invited Doan to be a part of the Easter hike. And Jim said, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> and from then on, Doan and I were hiking buddies. And again, how do you explain those things? You can't. And they would cram in these weekend hikes together, going all the way from Ohio to the Smokies, and woke up at 2 a.m. on Saturdays to drive there. I don't know if Doan got any sleep on the night before. I didn't ever get much. It was an eight-hour drive in the middle of the night, creating a lot of time for these two guys to create a deep, bond. And on the hikes themselves, they experienced things that you wouldn't think two business partners would have experienced together. And especially during one of the coldest hikes that they took. To witness how someone dies of the cold. They didn't make it there, but I had to curse them and force them to find firewood. They were sitting there with absolutely no interest in survival. And kind of an eerie experience to watch people give up. 
these three friends and co-founders would operate Ariel Corporation as great friends naturally would, pretty equally, even though Bookwald was the majority owner because he designed the compressor. We never, the three of us, ever had a discussion about who was in charge. I think we did a good job for 17 years. Ariel was founded over 50 years ago, so something changed. In the early days, George Woodman was still working full-time elsewhere in Houston, headed up Ariel's sales team in his spare time, and ran an independent finance operation that helped the company. And Jim Bookwald really thought Ariel would benefit if George moved into it full-time. But that would require giving up ownership stakes to the shareholders of George's finance operation. I also realized that the company had become something more than just our possession. The company itself was an entity. I realized then that I was now a servant of the company and I had to concern myself about its survival and its success. And that was really when I decided we'd have to take George aboard and we'd have to have more shareholders and it would clearly put me below the 50% level. And it was, uh, it was the right judgment seemingly at the time but it came back to haunt him this is this is an uncomfortable thing to talk about i don't know what george was doing but he didn't seem to be working very hard it turned out that george really as a salesman was uncomfortable making cold calls well that's kind of a debilitating sort of nun skill <laughs> that's the salesman should be able to do that Doan had uh, I think he'd lost interest. I couldn't find anything to say, Don, this is yours, because I've tried that a couple of times and he just didn't get it done. So Don was spending a lot of time not doing anything, and Hallie was my friend. I really didn't know what to do. In a word, they were disengaged. And it's within this context that Jim discovered that Don and Woodman were secretly conspiring for another employee forced Krajensky to take his job as president, the very same employee whom Jim had graciously agreed to make a 1% owner of Ariel at his request. They were uh, talking about uh, a takeover, and this was going on, and I didn't quite know what to do about it. It was in August of 83 that George determined that we should get together and talk things out. He had read some kind of an article by some kind of a business psychologist, something unintelligible of it, and I tried to read it and I just decided, this is so awful. <laughs> it was just gibberish. All the latest neat words, <laughs> they were well regarded by people who didn't know any better. And that stirred him up sufficiently that he demanded the three of us have a meeting. George wanted us to come to Houston. I didn't want to go to Houston. And he didn't want to come here because would there be too many interruptions. He wanted to have this thing be a real heart to heart. So we got reservations at a hotel up in Sandusky and Doan and I were going to drive up, and then I decided 
I just don't want to spend time with Don. He's starting to drive me nuts. So I decided to fly one of the, we may have had two airplanes. So I pulled out the rear seat and stuffed a bicycle in there. And we went someplace for dinner that night. And I think I realized that I was in real trouble. That his two co-founders might be gearing up to gang up on him. But we really hadn't started the discussion yet. And I slept well enough. In uh, 83, I would have been 55. So I was still young, pretty tough. Uh, And I woke up early and I was pretty sure they weren't awake yet. And I quietly got my time trial bicycle out and went tearing off into a glorious morning. It was a, just a glorious morning. It was cool, but again, I was, I was only 55, and so I, oh, I had a great ride. While the past, present, and now the uncertain future of his work and his friendships raced through his mind as fast as he raced. And when we come back, we're going to continue the story of Jim Bookwald. What happens next? Hold on, we're about to tell you. Our American Stories, and we continue with Jim Bookwald's story on the erosion of his friendships with the co-founders of his company, Ariel Corporation. I got back, and those guys wanted to have a meeting right away. I said, you know, I'm standing here sweating. I I, I have to take a shower, okay? (laughs) So I took a shower, and they then wanted to sit down and start having our meeting, and I said, I have to have breakfast. Well, I mean, at the time, I was recognizing what I was doing as a piece of one-upsmanship, except I didn't have a leg to stand on. I finally ran out of dodges, and we sat down and had the talk. At one point in this discussion, they were getting pretty tough. What they were going to do is sell the company. To break up the band, which Jim didn't want to do. I think George had already put together a brochure for selling the company. This was kind of an ugly shock. I knew that this was going to be a difficult time, but I had no idea that it advanced that far. And at one point, and I was aware when I said it, that, that this was unreasonable, but I hope you guys will let me buy some stock so that I won't be subordinated to to whoever buys the company. And of course, that was a, even as I said it, I knew that is not something that they would willingly give because their shares would be worthless. But the shocking part, when George, I having said that, George turned and looked me 
in the eye with an expression that said, I don't really know you. You are not my friend. We are negotiating. And it really was, a, it, he didn't have to say anything. The look was already very clear and kind of an ugly thing. And he said, we are businessmen and we will do what makes business sense. I had been told. And just as they came to Sandusky separately, they went home separately. Even though the two gyms were going back to the same place. I think he and I didn't do any hiking together after that, uh, uh, which is sad. Terribly sad. But in this moment, the most pressing concern on Jim's mind was that he had to figure out a way to regain control of the company so that it couldn't be sold and in his view likely destroyed by corporate types with accountant-like mentalities. What would he do? Strangely enough, it was yet another problem that Jim was facing that presented an opportunity to solve this problem. Jim had demoted Horst Krajensky before he knew that he was coming after his own job. And in return, Horst made the highly unusual demand of a five-year monetary guarantee, which almost no one has and which Jim refused to sign. But he now had a reason to sign it. That move on my part, whether it was well thought out or just stubbornness, that was pivotal. The fact that I did not sign that contract made it possible to negotiate for horse 1% shares. If that hadn't been the case, Ariel Corporation would be a faint memory. Horst agreed to sell his stake for $150,000, plus the five-year guarantee, bringing Jim from a large minority at 49.5% to a small majority at 50.5%, but a majority it was. There was just one problem with this. Jim didn't have the money for it still. 17 years into the business, and he couldn't afford to pay that. So he'd have to take out a loan for it. We were still a tiny company, still fighting for our lives. It looks easy, I think, to people today, but no, it wasn't. We, we were always close to disaster. In fact, Ariel didn't have the money to buy out Doan and Woodman. So those guys still went out to find a buyer for their ownership interest, which Jim thought would be few in number now that they were selling a less valuable minority position. But he was surprised that three of the top industry players were still interested. And Jim would find himself so disenchanted with the whole situation that he eventually told Ingersoll Rand's representative, Ted Black, fine, I'll sell to you. I'll sell to you my majority, but for a price that he thought they'd just never accept. $18 million, a price that would afford him the biplane that he wanted. 
darn it, he accepted. And there I was. I really, really liked the business I was in. And I, I said, how can I decently extricate myself? I don't know why I did this in the first place, because I really don't want to sell out. I put myself in a very, very awkward position, and I thought, how do I gracefully get out of this thing, or how do I even explain it to myself, walking away from an extraordinarily large sum of money? And at that time, 18 million bucks was a very large sum of money. Still is today, to me. <laughs> but in today's dollars, it would be 43 million. And I thought, what would I do with that money? Well, I'd get in the capital goods business because I'd really enjoy it. I thought, well, you're already in the capital goods business. And, and that was a, a sufficient reason to round out the logic of the thing. And the fact is that that 18 million meant a lot to me. I could, for many years, console myself, or no, no, better than that. I, for, for a number of years, I felt like I am worth $18 million, and that really, that really was almost as good as having the money. Because, <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with $18 million? Except, as I realized, go right back into what I was doing. <laughs> so it, it wouldn't have been something I kept. I wasn't going to live high or anything. I'm an engineer by trade. You, you just don't think that way. His co-founder, George Woodman, more thought that way. And after nine years, he and Jim Doan would finally find a buyer for the entirety of their stakes. And after battling a majority owner, Jim Bookwald, who refused to let them run the company with him, that buyer ended up selling back to Ariel for money that once again, Ariel had to borrow. It was a mess, a nine-year mess that Jim wrote was feeble of him not to find some way to finance the buying out of his other co-founders, his former friends, earlier. Well, it all came to an end on, of all days, Christmas Eve 1992, when Jim was notified by George that he had ended his lawsuit against them. Finally, finally, I got a, what was a fax copy? We were still using fax machines. And I thought that was good enough, had his signature on it, and that cleared everything up. And Jim dashed to the office to join everyone for Christmas dinner. Their employees back then got together for Christmas Eve dinner, typically the last place most people would want to be on Christmas Eve. At work and with people that they see all the time. Not at Ariel. Let me tell you about that. <clears throat> a number of years before that, a couple of fellows on the assembly floor decided to bring in some food for Christmas. And I think just in that year, everybody kind of joined in and the whole company sat down together and had a Christmas dinner. And it was mostly a potluck sort of thing. People brought things in. 
and it got to be a, a habit. And as time went on, we had to have more and more space. We always somehow found a space on, on the assembly floor or someplace. Didn't at the time think there was anything strange about it, but of course it was a little unusual. But uh, everybody, everybody who worked there joined us. And uh, it was to one of those males that I came out within minutes or so of receiving this last fax, canceling the last lawsuit and clearing this whole thing up. And I told everybody about it. I mean, they could all hear me. I've got a good loud voice if I put it to work. And I told them all that we're out. We're out from under. We can run our company and we can do a good job. And uh, they were all delighted to hear that. I, I, I still hear that from guys who were there at the time. I remember that. And I've had better meals, but never one I enjoyed more. And what a story. Great job, as always, Alex. And my goodness, these stories about American dreamers aren't always straight rides up. And boy, was this one tough. The erosion of friendships real-life drama in the balance, more than just money, as we find out. So much more than money. Real-life stories, Jim Bookwald's stories, here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 